Since the mid-50s, Dr. King fought for the civil rights for all people through nonviolent protests, through impassioned speeches, and through political legislation. He stood for all the poor, red, yellow, black, and white. He stood for the marginalized. He stood for the oppressed. And his influence over the civil rights movement led to the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Fair Housing Act, all of which served to legally end segregation and discrimination in housing. Dr. King's legacy is monumental. The movement he led has made our nation and our world a better place. And no matter what your political perspective, I believe the fact that we have twice elected an African-American as our president speaks of how far we have come. And personally, it makes me very proud of our country. But racial division and the resurgence of white supremacy in our nation disturbs me. It's not right, and I am going to say something about it. So as a white Christian leader and pastor, I want my friends and neighbors from other ethnicities and other religions to know that I feel empathy and sorrow for the pain of racism that you may feel. And as a leader of the movement that Jesus began, we are going to do something about racial injustice in our society. This series marks the beginning, just the beginning, of what we will do as a church to stand against racism, bigotry, and social injustice. And I am asking you, as your pastor, to pray about your part, what you can do to make our world a better place. Where were you when you were first introduced to racism? I'll never forget where I was. I was about four or five years old, and I was selling plums that came from my backyard with my half-Mexican friend, Michael, who looked white. Now, see, what we do, I had this plum tree in my backyard, right? So we had the great idea to make money. We'd load up our little red wagon, and we'd drive around the neighborhood knocking on doors and selling people plums for 25 cents a plum. Now, let me tell you, in the early 80s, 25 cents a plum was way overpriced. We were swindling people with our cuteness. <laughs> my buddy's on the far right there. I guess left. <sighs> So we go throughout our neighborhood and everything's going super duper well. And then we knock on the door of one of the few black families on our street. We were raised in a white Latino, Latina suburb about 45 minutes east of LA. And we didn't have a lot of black families on the block. So we knocked, they opened up the door, we did our sales pitch and the woman that answered us stood and she looked at me, she gestured at me and she said, I'll buy some from you. And then she looked at my friend Michael and said, I'm not gonna buy any from you because your dad is racist. We were crushed. We were shocked. We didn't even know what it meant, but we knew it was bad. We both cried and cried and cried. Me because my friend was rejected. Him because he was just accused of something he didn't even understand. See, we were invited into the world of racism that day and we could never, ever go back. That's the day I was introduced to race in general and racism. It was like being in the matrix and taking that red pill. 
right? You see the world in a totally different way. And so many people see this world in black and white. Now, I'm half black and half white. I was raised entirely by white parents in an entirely white family with completely white, sometimes redneck, family. <laughs> but I am black. Black, white thinking, that distinction has been a part of my life since that day. Has racism impacted you, your friends, your families, your loved ones? Well, no matter who you are, where you're from, we got to address racial tension. Whether you are part of the majority group, a minority group, whether you're international, domestic, whatever, we need to address racial tension. This is not just a social problem. This isn't just for social justice warriors. This is a spiritual problem. And I'm here and Brent's here to help lead our church to make a difference and you have a role. See, from the beginning of the church movement, Jesus intended us to be catalysts of spiritual and social change. That's right, so in, in one incident, Jesus actually faced racism himself and then confronted racism in his own followers. So, so let me set up the, the, what made this uh, scene so racially charged. Uh, and it was uh, racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. So the Samaritans were descendants of hundreds of years ago of poor Israelite, uh, Israelites from the northern kingdom when the Assyrian Empire came in and captured the northern kingdom in 722 BC, they left the poorest of the poor northern Israelites to farm the land, and then they took the rest of the people off to Assyria. But they sent in other poor people from other nations they had captured, and so those people intermingled with the poor Jews who had stayed in the land. And so from that point forward, the, the Jews who lived in the south and remained you know, racially pure viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. And so for hundreds of years, there had been tension. And by Jesus' day, Jews did not associate with or even speak to Samaritans. So things were tense. And so Jesus was in the area called Galilee. He was heading toward Jerusalem for the last time, but the straight road took you through Samaria. This is Luke. Chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. So Jesus had sent messengers ahead because back in their day, you didn't have like commercial inns in most villages. So you would stay in someone's home. But the people in that village would not accept Jesus and his travelers because they were Jewish. So Jesus faced racism. And then his disciples proposed responding to racism with what? Racially charged violence. And can I just say, as a leader of the church, 
if you're trying to start a church, I think calling down fire upon unbelievers is just not the greatest strategy. Jesus knew it was not right to react to this with violence or cursing. What the Samaritans did was wrong. Jesus doesn't condone racism, but fueling the fire only leads to more bitterness and resentment. If they'd been violent, even if they just cursed them, the resentment and the bitterness would only have grown between the Jews and the Samaritans. He would be meeting hate with hate. See, Jesus, in all of his life, rejected hate and embraced love. See, Dr. King, centuries later, summarized Jesus' platform with this quote, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Now, while Jesus did not retaliate in response to racism toward himself, he did confront racism when he saw it in his disciples. Remember what the scripture says, he rebuked them. He called it out and stood against it. And a key part of us bringing social change involves rebuking racism. So I'm asking you not to tolerate racially demeaning jokes or or language or conversations. Don't accept racially prejudiced actions or decisions in your families, in your workplaces, in your schools, and in your communities. Call it out and stand against it. Wherever you see racism, even if you see it in yourself. Now, uh, on my dad's side of the family, my grandparents were the first generation to believe in Jesus and to become his followers. And my grandmother is probably the most Christ-like person I've ever met personally. She was just loving and warm and caring, but she would confront wrong when she saw it. So one night, she was coming from a church event with her sister-in-law, and they were driving, you know, in the dark, and they came up to a stoplight, and then right beside them pulled up another car with three black men in it. And when my grandmother saw the three black men, she got nervous. And so she and her sister hastily locked all of the car doors. Well, the guys saw what they did, and so they looked at my grandmother and went, oh, I feel like they were scared of her, and they locked all of their doors too. Now, the reason I know about that is because my grandmother was shocked by the racism that came out of her own heart. It embarrassed her. And the reason I know about it is because she told other people that story as a kind of confession, but also to challenge us not to tolerate even the hint of racism in our hearts. When you see racism, call it out and stand against it. I think Dr. King was right when he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And when you see racial injustice, whether in somebody else or even in your own heart, call it out and stand against it. Now, shortly after that racially charged incident with the Samaritans, Jesus took one more definitive step to bring social change. In Luke chapter 10, we're picking up not too long after that, and Jesus is talking with Jewish leaders, and a Jewish leader pulls him aside and wants to talk to him about the greatest commandment, and this is what Jesus tells him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
But see, this guy was trying to trick Jesus. He wants to get him to say something that's gonna be bad for him. And so he says, well, who is my neighbor? Instead of answering his question, Jesus told him a story. See, he told him a story about a Jewish traveler traveling on a dark and dangerous road and he was mugged, he was robbed and he was beaten severely with injuries that could cost him his life. And while he's laying there in the dark, two Jewish leaders passed on by him. They walked by him, they saw him, they saw that he'd been mugged, they saw that he was hurting, they saw that he was in trouble and they just kept walking. We don't know why, but they just kept walking. But then who shows up? One of the hated Samarians. What was the Samaritan gonna do? Well, this Samaritan not only tended to his wounds, not only tried to feed him, he took him to an inn where he could be put up and heal from his injuries. And as he talked to the innkeeper, the Samaritan told him, if this isn't enough, I'll pay you more when I come back. The Samaritan took care of the Jewish man. And what do we call someone who shows kindness like that to a stranger now? A good Samaritan, right? That, that story has endured all throughout time. But Jesus wasn't just establishing language, he was recasting vision. He was turning the despised to the hero. He was taking the bad guy and making them the good guy. See, he was redefining how his Jewish followers would see the Samaritans, the Samaritans that they treated so badly. He was redefining what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So next time, Jewish followers, when a Samaritan rolls up to you, don't lock the doors, assume they'll help. Assume the best in them. And when you assume the best, you start to see the best. And when we assume the best, our society can change. That's right. And so to become catalysts of social change like Jesus expected, I think some of us, maybe even many of us, need to recast our vision of people from other races. I believe we need to let the love of our neighbor begin to cloud our vision in a positive way. Let the love of our neighbors begin to change our assumptions about people from other races and let the love for our neighbors instill within us a courage to rise up and stand against racism. Now, Jesus intended this is what John and I are trying to get across. He intended that his church would not only be a place for spiritual change, but also for social change. Because Jesus brought good news for the spiritually abused and the socially abused. Mm -hmm. He brought good news for those struggling with sin and for those struggling with poverty. He brought good news for those wrestling with temptation and those wrestling with prejudice. He brought it for those wanting to overcome addictions and those wanting to overcome oppression. Yes. And so this is what we are asking you to do, to be a catalyst of social change. Don't be shy. We're honoring Dr. King today. So let us preach. This is what I'm asking you to do. If you've experienced racism, I'm asking you to forgive. If you've experienced racism, I'm asking you to forgive. That doesn't mean it was okay. 
It doesn't mean whatever words, whatever behavior, whatever violence you experienced was okay because racism is not okay. But forgiveness isn't for them. Forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness is to let go of the baggage and resentment that build as you carry these things around with you. You need to tell the stories of the racism you've encountered. You need to do it because when you don't forgive, that bitterness and resentment will drive you to hate. Now, this is not popular now. So many of these so-called civil rights leaders will tell you, you don't need to forgive anybody. You wait for them to come apologize to you. And I'm here to tell you, that's not Jesus's way. That's not Martin Luther King's way. No, no, no. That's why the church has to be a part of reconciliation and social justice. Because when you take Jesus out, you get bitterness and resentment. When you take the church out of this, you get no spiritual aspect. And we need the church to be a part of this. Second thing uh, that I'm asking us to do as a church is to radically love. And the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan, it's very clear that radical love is not passive. It is active. So I don't think we can just sort of wait around and hope everything gets better and just sort of live in la-la land. I think we must engage. I believe we must do something. And I'm asking you to find ways to express active love. Now, if I can, I do want to admit something to you. During the decades of the civil rights movement, many southern white evangelicals remained at best passive observers of racial injustice and at worst, secret supporters of it. Some pastors said they were uncomfortable getting involved in politics and other church leaders have what what I believe is, is a deficient view of sin. And here's what I mean by that. Most of the religious leaders from my spiritual heritage focus primarily and solely on individual sin. And we do need to focus on that. That's important. But there's another aspect of sin that Jesus addressed, as did all of the prophets, and that is social sin. And too many white evangelical leaders remain passive in the face of the social sin of racial injustice. And Dr. King noticed the poverty of our passivity. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, he wrote, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the KKK, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. And so as a Southern white evangelical leader, I apologize. We were wrong. I ask you to forgive us of our, the sin of passivity. And please know that City Church, we challenge our people to radically love. And radical love is active. It's not passive. It doesn't just hope things get better. It engages to make things better. 
And so I am asking you to join me in standing against racism, against bigotry, and against social injustice. We will do something about this because radical love requires it. And, and I'm also asking you, I'm asking you to learn and or to notice how racism gets into our culture and into our systems. Notice and in, in surface what I call systemic racism that does infiltrate our society. So if you work in the mortgage industry and you witness redlining, and if you work in the mortgage industry, you know what I'm talking about. Call it out and stand against it. If you work in the medical field and notice neglect based on race, call it out and stand against it. If you work in our schools and detect racial preference, call it out and stand against it. If you work in the military and notice racial preferences in promotion, call it out and stand against it. And if you're a parent, for goodness sakes, teach your children that all people, all people have been created in God's image and deserve love and respect even if we don't agree with them about everything. Whatever industry you work in, whatever community you live in, when you see racism, call it out and stand against it because radical love requires it. Thank you. Y'all can't be shy. Don't be shy. Just jump on in. The next thing I'm going to ask you to do, especially my people of color, be patient with those people getting woke. People don't get woke overnight. Now, the people that got what woke means like laughed, but maybe some of y'all don't know that slang term, right? Woke means that your eyes are opened to something new that you hadn't seen before, right? You start to see racism and you start to engage with it and see that it's not right. But that's a slow process. And it's a journey for people. And it is very complicated, especially when you come from an environment that may promote racism. So we have to be patient because I know that it can be frustrating because I know what it's like for being everybody's one black friend who come up to you and be like, hey, John, slavery was bad. You're like, yeah, right. Well, it can be frustrating because we've been living with this all of our lives and only now do you, does it feel like other people might be caring about it, but we have to be patient with our allies. Like Brent was just talking about with the white moderate, Martin Luther King called them the great stumbling block, but you know what that means? That the white moderate is a game changer. If we have allies in our struggle, we can win this battle. That's right. So please be patient with people as they get woke. I'm also asking you in whatever sphere of influence that you have to pursue racial diversity. Now in preparation for this message, I interviewed two of my black friends. One of them is about my age in his mid fifties. Uh, he was in a small group with me for many years. And so he knows like my, my worst baggage and uh, he retired as a full bird colonel from the United States Army. The other is in his 30s, and he's my, one of my poker buddies, and he's one of my fantasy football buddies, uh, and I beat him this year, which is very important to me. 
Both have experienced various forms of racism throughout their lives and still do today. And so I asked both of them, what would you say to the church and to Christians about what we can do to help bring racial harmony where there's racial tension and to bring racial reconciliation? And both of them said the same thing. They both said that we need to work together to pursue racial diversity at work, in schools, in our communities, and in churches. Because when people from different races connect, they empathize, and when they empathize, it motivates them to move beyond racial differences and stereotypes. And so there's something I want you to know that you may not know. So as the lead pastor of City Church, I'm technically the president of this nonprofit organization. But what you may not know is that our vice president is a gentleman named Jess Herbert, who lives right over there. He is a black man, he is a veteran, and he is one of the very first people we baptized when we moved to this location. And I want you to know that this campus has an executive team, which is me and John, our associate pastor, and our executive pastor, Michelle Jack, who is Hispanic. We also, and, and we make major decisions together. I don't want to be out there on my own. We make decisions together. And then we have a leadership team where most of the decisions are made, which has five men, five women, ranging in ages from tw the 20s to the 70s, and whose racial mixture reflects the racial mixture of our community. And I want you to know that City Church is committed to racial and gender diversity. And, and, and I'm going to add this, John, this didn't, I didn't say this, so I hope I don't make anybody mad. But I'm not committed to racial diversity alone. The reason John is our associate pastor is because he has a degree from the University of Southern California. He is smart, he's a good leader, and he just got his master's degree in theology. Okay? And the reason Michelle is our executive pastor is she used to be a senior executive at USAA. She's smart. She's smarter than I am for sure. You want her running this church, not me. So it's not just diversity and you just sort of tolerate. No, these people are qualified and they've made us better. So that's the part I threw in there, John. So I do challenge you. So I challenge you, okay, I'm doing my part, now I'm challenging you. As a business leader, as a military leader, as an um, educational leader, in whatever sphere you have influence, you influence it toward racial diversity, and you will be glad that you did. Yes. Well, the last thing I'm going to ask for you in being catalysts of spiritual and social change is to create hope for a better future. Man, I see the news right now. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to quit. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to look at the task and decide it is impossible. I get it. It is so negative, but resist the urge to let hopelessness set in. Resist whatever that is stirring in your heart to say, this is hopeless. Instead, we're called to create hope. 
See, that's what set Martin Luther King Jr. apart from all of the people of his time and all of the people that have come since. A commitment to an enduring hope because we can do this. You heard it in that video that we started with. I may not make it with you, but I've been to the mountaintop. I may not make it with you, but we're going to get to the promised land of racial reconciliation and equality. Hope that we are going to get there. He never doubted it. And we are here to carry his dream forward. We are his dream. The dream that believes in the American dream that all men and women, no matter where you come from, are equal and deserve respect that our children will no longer be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. The little white boys and girls, little black boys and girls, little brown boys and girls, little Native American boys and girls, little Asian boys and girls cannot just play together, but pray together. That's right, that's right. That people like you and me, regular people, courageously connecting with others and radically loving our community can bring his dream to life. For my eyes have seen the glory <laughs> of the coming of the Lord. Now, before we end, I want us to pray together as a congregation. We're gonna pray one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s prayers. Stand with me and you could read off the screen. I'm gonna lead us. I'm gonna lead us through this prayer for unity and a prayer that keeps God centered in this movement. Just follow along with me. God, we thank you for the inspiration of Jesus. Grant that we will love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and that we will love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even our enemy neighbors. And we ask you, God, in these, in these days, days of emotional, emotional tension, tension, when the when problems the of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, to be with us in our going out and our coming in, in our rising up and our lying down, in our moments of joy and in our moments of sorrow, until the day when there shall be no sunset and no dawn. And Lord God, I do ask that you would bless us as followers of your son, Jesus Christ, who did come to be, be a, a promoter and a catalyst of spiritual and social change, help us as we engage our families, our communities, and our society. Give us courage where we need courage. Give us uh, peace where we need peace. Give us grace where we need grace. Let us be instruments who make things better in our world and Lord, because you said you sent us out to be peacemakers and peace doesn't just happen. You have to make peace. So help us, Lord, to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen.